Hello and welcome to the History of the Cards, Episode 7, Assassination. So last time, we stopped around 965, just before the Fatimids take over of Egypt there was one important event that I decided to skip over in the narrative last week to give it its due this week. The deaths, the life and the deaths of the 60th Patriarch of Alexandria, Theophanius. He had quite a story, and I did not want to jam it in last week. So we need to go back in time to around 952 AD to talk about him. You see, Pope Macarius of last week, the one who reigned for 20 years, and we don't know much about him, died in 952, during the reign of the eunuch Kafur. Right after his death, Suphanius was ordained, who was an elderly resident of Alexandria, in what seemed like a straightforward and orderly transition. Right away, the patriarch had a problem, so. The 1,000 dinars that he had to pay every year to the Alexandrian clergy. That money was more or less coming through simony and the selling of the church offices, since the days of Khalil under Ibn Tawlum. But it had been close to 75 years now, and the allure of the title, plus the financial reward, was no longer worse what it used to be. Suyufanius needed to either really relax the criteria for ordinations or renegotiate the agreement with the Alexandrians. He chose the latter and failed miserably. As the history of the patriarchs puts it, quote, He paid to the Alexandrians the thousand dinars which had been agreed upon for them every year. And then, he had difficulty to pay in certain years, and he asked them to remit to him something of it, but they would not do so. They quarreled with him and said to him, We shall not exempt you from a single dirham of the thousand dinars. Now, to be fair here, Suphanius was being very reasonable. You see, even so, Simony is bad. During the last 75 years, it wasn't really that bad. And that's because the patriarchs did not take all comers. No, they picked people who could afford the fee and were likely to be good candidates, well-educated and influential in their community. And in some cases, if the candidate could not afford the fee, then the village that they are ordained over would end up willingly collecting the money to get their choice anyway. At worst, the richest family in the area would just have one of their own become the priest, which again, wasn't ideal, but these men were the ones being ordained anyway, fee or no fee. The point is, there was enough good and rich candidates to be ordained. So most of the time, good men 
ended up being the priests and the bishops of their area. It worked while the economy was expanding and there was plenty of good men who could afford the titles. But under Siufanius, Egypt was starting to be hit with the back-to-back famines, and all of a sudden, there weren't just enough good candidates who could afford the title. And so, the patriarch was faced with the choice of taking all commerce, good candidates or not, or do what he did and fight the Alexandrians. That fight did not go well for him, and it escalated very quickly. For the writer of his biography, Michael, Bishop of Tennis, Suefanius and Alexandrian ended up getting into a huge public argument. The Alexandrians said something along the line that they are the ones who chose the patriarch. So if Suefanius cannot give them the money, then maybe he should walk away. Quote, Is there pay to us what you owe? If not, then give us our vestments. And in response, the patriarch literally took off his vestments in public and, quote, threw them in their faces. Now, this is really bad optics for everyone. And quickly, the patriarch, who was pretty old at this point, was taken away and more or less imprisoned. But in the big scheme of things, the clergy of Alexandria were pretty insignificant, and they could not just keep the patriarch of all of Egypt imprisoned forever. And so, they decided to take him to Fustat, in chains, and deal with Kafur. There, on the boat to Fustat, we hit the bottom of our journey. The Coptic Pope was assassinated by one of those clergy. Now, there's a couple of interesting theory of what actually prompted that extreme step of assassination, rather than just take him to Fustat and deal with the issue there. I'm going to quote the text first, then we'll explore these theories, as the text is quite intriguing. Quote, He cried out, and blasphemed, and said what those who are opposed to us say. It is said that one of the disciples of the bishops who were with him went down in the night into the hold, and with a bell, and placed it on his face while he was sleeping, and sat upon it until he was dead. And that's how Siufanius was assassinated. It could be that the assassination was not planned, just a random person who decided to take matters into his own hand and get rid of the troublesome patriarch. On the other hand, some historians propose that Suefanius threatened to convert to Islam, and in response to that extreme threat, extreme measures had to be taken. So it was a conscious decision by at least some of the hierarchy. A similar theory to the one above is that the Pope threatened to join the Milkites. But honestly, something doesn't fit with all these three. If you ask me, 
and said that he was simply lashing out from the anger. And the assassination was more or less about the money, rather than the patriarch's supposed blasphemy. Siouphanius did not need to convert to Islam or be a Melkite to win his argument. The Coptic civil elite in Fustat would have taken his side, and Kafur would have deferred to them. Plus, if he was to convert so easily, it would have made more sense for him to just take all comers for the ordination and give the Alexandrians their money. Lastly, the most common explanation to this whole thing in the secondary literature, also it stands on a pretty shaky ground, is that Siouphanius was old and demented. A raging dementia, as Mark Swanson puts it in his The Coptic Papacy in the Islamic Egypt book. A dementia that was causing problems, and so he had to go. But again, a cold-blooded assassination is a bit extreme to deal with a demented patriarch. It would have been quite acceptable to everybody to send him to a monastery and keep him there rather than kill him. But yeah, that was the tragedy of Siophanius, and as if divine justice was waiting, a few years after his death, a multi-year famine occurred that, quote, emptied the land of Egypt. Following Siouphanius was another intriguing choice. A formerly married monk with the name of Mina. And formerly married here is used in a loose sense. His wife was still alive and well at his elevation. And technically, they were still married. Also, Mina have left the marriage from monasticism a while back. The official story that we get is that he left his marriage after four days for the monastery, keeping his virginity and only marrying out of obedience to his parents. The circumstances of his elevation is somewhat obscure, also we do know a little bit. After the previous patriarch untimely death, seems that the civil elite in Fustat asserted themselves against the Alexandrian and took the lead in picking a replacement. Their message was simple. Go to the largest monastery at the time, the monastery of St. Macarius, and ask its head to nominate his best monk for the office. The monk was Mina. Then, they proceeded on a tour to gather support for his elevation, which went well until they came to his village. There, it was discovered that he was married and his wife was still around. Nonetheless, after assurances that the marriage was only on paper, the tour proceeded and Mina became the patriarch on 956 and will stay so for the next 18 years, will enter Fatmid's rule. The yearly payment to the Alexandrians disappeared from the historical record during his reign. And if I have to guess, the backlash from Siouphanius' death 
allowed the new patriarch, Mina, to break away from the obligation right away. Also, he essentially stayed away from both Alexandria and Fustat, staying in a small city in the Delta, under the patronage of a quote, a chief woman who was rich and God-fearing, named Dina. Just something to put out there and consider, since our narrative have been male-dominated. Despite all of medieval Egypt's tragedies and miseries, we get a chief woman who were basically single-handedly supporting the whole structure of the patriarchy. Good for you, Dina. And with this, we are caught up with the year 965-966, where we stopped last time. This was a significant year, as it was when Al-Ikhsid's sons died, and Kafur just ruled outright in his name, without hiding behind a figurehead. It was also the height of the famine, and the beginning of the end of Egypt as a semi-independent province in the Abbasid Caliphate. The Fatimids were coming. You see, in the last two years in Kafur's reign, from 966 to 968, the situation was pretty desperate. He was sick and dying, with the Coptic sources insisting that he was actually dead during those years, and his officers were hiding the fact and pretending that he was alive. A claim that is not entirely crazy, as one of those officers, a civil administrator, was a Copt, with the name Abuyumin Cosmos Ibn Mina and he would know. Not to mention, the political environment was very unstable in Fustat, and adding a succession crisis to the mix would have been really, really bad for everybody. One, as we mentioned, there was the famines, which were putting the population on edge. Two, there was a real tension between the civil administrators and the army probably related to who's going to succeed Kafur. The army officers invited a distant relative of Al-Ikhsid to come to Egypt and be their puppet, I mean their chief. He came, stayed a couple of months, realized that he was being invited to be a figurehead, and decided not to play, leaving right away to his hometown in Palestine. This kicked the ball to the civil administration, who quickly fell into a state of factionalism and infighting rather than fall in line behind anyone. Ibn Kellis, the talented Jewish convert, was arrested by a competitor, who officially announced Kafurstas in April 968 and installed himself as the new ruler of Egypt. I won't bother you with the name, because no one else accepted his proclamation. The army generals, with their own blood of lands and followers, just did their own thing with the little fiefdoms. Basically, I won't bother you if you don't bother me, kind of a deal. 
And so, the new ruler, if we can call him that, needed money pretty quickly. And so, he released Ibn Kelis, probably after having him pay a large sum of money, and on the condition that he leaves Egypt. And this was a big mistake. Ibn Kelis immediately traveled to North Africa, where he found plans in motion already to conquer Egypt by the Fatimids. Plans that he will immediately contribute to and turn into reality. You see, the problem with the Fatimids taking control of Egypt was always logistics and supply lines. Since their first attempt, they easily outmanned and outgunned whoever was running Egypt. But feeding and supplying their army was the problem. Not to mention, water was always an issue for those invading Egypt from the west. To move from Alexandria, which they always managed to take in their attempts, to Fustat required either going through the marshes of the delta, a bad idea if you are moving a large army and familiar with the land, or through the desert, which needed flawless planning and execution to not get lost or die of thirst. Ibn Kelis, who if you remember, managed to remember the districts of Egypt and their agricultural yield, was the perfect man to add to the Fatimid's expedition. Especially if you combine his talents and expertise with the Fatimid general in charge of the operation, a Byzantine or a Slav freed slave named Jauhar. Jauhar was an exceptionally talented military general who by the 960s AD had spent considerable time pacifying and expanding Fatimid rule in North Africa against rebellious Berber tribes. The Fatimids, for theological and ideological reasons, could not accept coexistence with the Abbasids, and as such, they had no interest in continuing to expand west, but their eyes was in Egypt, which they saw as the first step to topple the heretical and corrupt caliphate in Baghdad. So, naturally, they always had Asians in Egypt, and their imam slash caliph at the time, al-Mu'izz, had ordered Jauhar to prepare for an invasion as early as 966. Jauhar, knowing the troubles that his predecessors faced, took extreme measures to ensure the success of the campaign, was the total cost of the project of 24 million dinars, if we are to believe the primary sources. And there is really no reason to doubt the cost of the expedition. Jauhar not only built an army, no, he built new roads in the desert and renovated the old ones, solidly connecting Egypt to North Africa. In addition, he dug countless wells at regular intervals along the route. And finally, he spread a lot of money around on his way to ensure cooperation with the local population. 
when Ibn Achilles came over to North Africa, that was all what he needed to move forward was the conquest. It was to be the most significant and the easiest conquest Jauhar had to take. He arrived in Egypt in February 969, took over Alexandria and Fayum without fighting, and waited to see what would be the reaction in Fustat. There, the quote-unquote ruler, without much of a base or a military to fight the Berber Jauhar, went over to negotiate a peaceful treaty. With him came a couple of the heads of influential Arab families and a chief judge of Fustat, as well as important civil administrators, but importantly none of the military generals. The ruler and his entourage basically capitulated to Jauhar without much of a negotiation. He only guaranteed their safety and nothing else, so it was really a surrender. Now, that did not mean that Jauhar have won. Now, it will be another five months until he actually enters Fustat. And that's because those army generals, afraid of losing their lands and status, decided to fight on their own. It wasn't much of a fight, so. Mostly guerrilla warfare of disorganized troops on their part, and lots of chasing around on the Fatmid's part. We only get a snippet from the events around Tennis, since our primary source, Bishop Michael, ended up bishop of the area, and probably had good access to a preserved oral accounts from the inhabitants of the conquest. At the arrival of the Fatmids, Tennis, a city in the Delta, was controlled by a warlord who controlled about a thousand troops. He's probably one of these generals that decided to resist. But the inhabitants of the city were not keen on getting stuck in the middle between the Fatmids and these guys. So one of its leading men, a Christian named Kislam, promised Jauhar assistance in taking Tennis in a clever blood. Basically, a contingent of Jauhar's army was to go to the city and start a half-hearted siege, at which point Kislam would offer his services to the warlord to negotiate a settlement with the Fatmids. The warlord and his officers was not really much to lose, agreed. Kislam, with prior arrangement with Jauhar, announced very generous terms. The warlord and his officers were each to get 10 dinars and a nice set of ropes, plus a guarantee of safety and their position. And with basically their position secured and getting some money as a bonus, they agreed and opened the gates of the city. At which point, Kislam, in celebration, arranged a large banquet to the officers and Jauhar's men. When they ate and got drunk, the doors were closed and the Fatmids, with Kislam help, massacred all of them. For effect and to get the message across, the Fatmids then hanged the bodies of the officers on the walls of the city 
for all to see. As a reward for his help, Kislam and then his family after him governed the area on behalf of the Fatimids for at least the next 150 years, where Michael was the bishop and quite familiar with their origin story. That mix of fighting, betrayal, and alliances went on for about six months. By July, most of the fighting in Egypt was over. Jauhar set up a large military camp north of Ibn Tawlun's mosque, the future site of Cairo, and in a highly symbolic event, he led the prayers in the mosque of Amr and proclaimed the caliph as a Muaz rather than the Sunni Caliph in Baghdad, and by his proclamation, the conquest of Egypt by the Fatimids was done. Unlike any other conquest, it was over pretty quick, and in the big scheme of things, relatively bloodless. Governing so was an entirely different beast. The famines were still ongoing, and the economy was in shambles. And despite Jauhar's best effort, local strongmen were still around, looking for ways to undermine the central government. Not to mention, Jauhar had a large army of Berbers with him that he had to feed, supply, and keep away from the Sunni population to maintain peace. In that regards, he immediately sent a large contingent of his army to Syria to annex more territory under one of his underlings. They initially were successful and proceeded without much trouble all the way to Antioch, a Byzantine territory by this point. There, they met stiff resistance from the Romans and had to retreat under pressure, which the Carmatians took advantage of, and they basically fought and destroyed this Fatimid army in a battle for Damascus. I really don't want to jump into the rabbit hole of the different Shia sects, but the Carmatian and the Fatimids, both Shia and both with the same origin story, were sworn enemies by this point, and hated each other. Not to mention, on a practical level, the Carmatians, while not interested in ruling Syria, were very much interested in keeping them away from the Fatimids and collecting tribute from the individual cities. They used the momentum of their victory in Damascus and continued on to Palestine and eventually Egypt, all the way to the camp of the Fatimids itself, north of Fostad, causing all kind of destruction and mayhem underway. Shawhar was a good general, so, and he had built fortification around the camp, which the Carmatians could not break through. And as a result, plus being satisfied with their ability to continue to collect tribute from Syria, and also traveling heavy with the loot and the slaves they collected along their campaign, they retreated, leaving Egypt to Jauhar for now. Also, they will continue to make raids to Egypt all the way up to 974. So yeah, 
two years into his conquest, Jauhar was not doing so great. He had lost a good chunk of his army to the Karmatians and did not make much of a progress in centralizing the administration in Egypt. He did make good progress in one area, so the military camp was quickly transforming into a city. In the middle of the camp, he had built a central mosque, and it was named Al-Azhar, the main religious institution in Egypt to this day. And with the mosque, the camp started to get more buildings, neighborhoods, and eventually palaces. At this point, the caliph, Al-Mu'izz, decided to go ahead and move his court to Egypt to shore up and consolidate his rule there. Egypt was much more defensible than North Africa, which was subject to constant verbal rebellions. And the money and the resources that the caliph would bring with him was bound to make centralizing the administration much easier. And so, in November 972, the caliph al-Mu'izz, in a huge caravan, that included literally everything that the Fatimids owned, including the coffins of the deceased previous caliphs, started his trip to Egypt. By June 973, he entered the military camp, which was given the name of Mansouraya in a great fanfare. And fitting with the event, the camp slash city was renamed to Al-Mu'izz Victory or Al-Qahira Al-Mu'izziyah upon the Caliph entrance which was shortened to just Al-Qahira in time and that became Cairo when anglicized the modern capital of Egypt so yeah here you have it through the efforts of a Byzantine freed slave and a Jewish convert the Shia Caliphate extended its control to Sunni slash Christian Egypt. And in the process, and in the process building the very center of the modern Arab world in Cairo, and the most prestigious modern Sunni religious institution, Al-Azhar. And it only happened within a couple of years of their arrival. I guess that's how history works was a little bit of planning and a lot of irony. Before we go, if you have missed last week's announcement, I will be in Washington DC from November 22nd to 24th in the Coptic Voice Identities and Leadership Summit. It's a summit that Coptic Voice, the nonprofit which this podcast operates under, is putting together to bring like-minded individuals together for a weekend of fellowship, fun, events, and a little cultural and political activism. It would be great to see you there, and I'm pretty sure that I will be moderating at least one panel where we get to talk about history. So yeah, hope to see you there. Thank you for listening, farewell, and until next time. (music) 